0: Hello and welcome to Spycast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington DC. I'm Dr. Vince Hote, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. This is part 3 of Spycast interview with intelligence legend Fiona Rodriguez. Let's talk about the time period in between when you caught Che and when you vo- finally volunteered to go to Vietnam in 1970. What, what was happening in between?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, after I came back from, from Che's operation, uh, like actually, you know, in, in, the, in October, we were flowing to, from there, to, like I said, I already told you that, to Panama, mm-hmm. and from Panama to Charleston, South Carolina on a military flight, and, and, and back here. Uh, that's when they gave me that ID card 007 to buy things in, in, in the Southcom. So I stayed here for a while, and then they sent me at the beginning of 1968 to Ecuador. And what they were doing, they were setting up an intelligence unit. There would be something similar to our Secret Service uh, to work with this, this the Ecuadorian uh, presidency. And it was a colonel in charge of that. And we had people from the Army, from the Air Force, from the Navy, from the police. It was sort of a task force, you know, to advise the presidency, intelligence and everything. So we went to give them training, you know, in there. I went there with the rank of captain from the U.S. Army, assigned to the U.S. Embassy. I think my name was uh, Frank Garcia, uh, when I was there. And uh, I had my ID card from the U.S. Army captain. And we were, doing the training in there for a, for a while, and then we were brought back, because my other friend who went with me, his wife claimed that her uh, son and, and mm-hmm. the, daughters were being followed at the school was not I, I don't believe it was true, he just wanted him to go back. So, and they had the FBI uh, uh, giving security to my kid and, and, and his kid, even though my wife said she didn't see anything unusual mm-hmm. at the school or with the kid. So they pulled us out of Ecuador because of that. And then, mm-hmm. uh, The guy who used to be uh, working, I was working for directly in Bolivia uh, was the American from um, El Paso, Texas. He had been assigned apparently to Peru and he asked me by name, he wanted me to be working with him to be the advisor to the 48 Comandancia Guardia Civil. That's a a police unit in in Peru uh, who had a capability of paratroopers. The only the only police unit like the one, I think they have one similar in Canada. It's a police unit which are paratroopers because the police is the one really who goes around in the different cities and they were the one who had more contact with civilians where there are guerrillas area. So uh, the CIA set up a training uh, of this unit, a special unit, 48 Commandants of, City, of the police to be a counterinsurgency unit with, uh, with capability for uh, Parachuting into the areas, you know, we worked into the training of paratrooper actually from U.S. Special Forces. Hmm. They set up a training area in a, in a little town called masamari who was actually formed because of this unit near the Masamari River, and, and then they, they went a bunch of a special forces who spent some time there and taught them how to parachute and how, how to rig their parachute, and they had rigging tables and everything in there. Once that was finished, that's when they sent us from the CIA to give them the intelligence capability. And one interesting thing that I found that the radio, they had a radio base because, you know, they have, we had have the capabilities that were going to be in the field to communicate with telegraphy with the unit in the field. And what they had been giving were the same radio that we used during our team time, uh, which I recall, the Hammerlong radios uh, at the base, we had a, on, inside a boat uh, in Nicaragua in 1964-65. They used that equipment that they took away them from, from Nicaragua and gave it to the Peruvians. Mm. And we had the same type of RS-48 of, uh, radius uh, to operate in the field. And, you know, we were teaching them all of this. That's when I first arrived. It was interesting because, you know, I got there on a, on a weekend and my boss, you know, came with me, the American, introduced me to the colonel. Uh, his name was Danilo Agramonte. He was the commander uh, of, the, of this uh, paratrooper unit. And that Sunday, they had uh, uh, training practice. Now, the CIA has given them a C-47 aircraft. Uh, it was assigned to the Air Force, for Peruvian Air Force, with the compromise that the Air Force, it would belong to the Air Force, they will maintain it, but it was going to be used only to use to parachute this unit, to mm-hmm. support this unit. Okay, and they agree on that. So that afternoon they were going to jump, and, and Danilo Gramonte, the commander, came to me and said, Mr. Advisor, are you a paratrooper? And out of embarrassment, I said, Yes, sir. He said, How many jump? I said, 100. I never jumped from, <laughs> in, from my life from a plane. But I had the training of, of jumping when I was supposed to parachute into Cuba during the October crisis. I jumped from a table several times. So I, went, I already had my okay, friends with uh, this, this uh, captain Javier de Vincenzi, who was a police captain and I went to him and said how you put the parachute on I say, <laughs> you have I mean, you you never jump I say no I say, he told me I was crazy I was going to get killed I said no no I already took the training you know jumping from a table just practice a little bit so I went to the in, in the area where I had my quarters and I jumped several times you know the, the three point of contact that they teach you to jumping from a table and all of that thing and I did jump with them from there on and finally I got my wings from them. And when they graduated, I graduated with them along with the, I think I took like about 13 jumps mm. even though they require only eight for graduation. So uh, then, you know, while there, uh, that's when the military coup of Velasco Alvarado took place uh, and they overthrew <coughs> Fernando Velaunda Terry, the, the constitutional president. And the day that that happened, the police was not really, especially Agramonte, was not in any support of the army. There was a lot of problem between the police and the army at the time. So Agramonte called his officer, and I was was an advisor, I was in the meeting, and he said he was going to ask for the airplane to come to do some parachute training, and what we will do then, we force the pilot to fly us, and we'll be full gear, full military equipment, and then we fly to the presidential palace and jump over the presidential palace and retake it for the constitutional president. Mm. And then he asked me uh, if I would go with him. I say, You tell me it's a training exercise. The guy said, Yes, all right, I'll go with you. <laughs> and uh, of course, when they asked for the plane because of the situation in the country, the Air Force never sent the plane for wow. training. Now, the Army surrounded us from Satipo. They have a military unit in there. Uh, they surrounded our unit, but there was no shootout. It was a standoff. We will not give up, uh, and, and, and they will not attack. And it was fortunately because Javier de Vincenzo had a colonel who was second in command of the unit who was a relative of his. So they stayed like that you know, until late at night when General Barrio, who was the head of the Guardia Civil, agreed with the military coup. So, you know, the army retreated to their camps, they went on and shoot out, they agreed for the coup. Then we continued for a while, then Christmas came, and we, I we were supposed to go, come to the United States for Christmas. And then because Velasco Alvarado turned himself into the Soviet Union and got all the support to the Soviet Union, all of that, uh, they immediately terminated all military assistance to Peru. Right. So I never returned. And that's when I volunteered in in, um, in 69 uh, to go to Vietnam. Actually, they had me a, a meeting here with Tom Flores, the head of a station in in, our, in Venezuela. And he interviewed me and... Uh, then, in, in late December of 69, I was told that Tom Flores wanted me to go to Venezuela, and Ted Shackley agreed he wanted me to go to Vietnam. But what was my choice? So I told the agency, I said, look, you know, if, if you believe that uh, my presence in Venezuela is much, much important than Vietnam, then I'll go there. But if it is my choice, I'd rather go to Vietnam. I've never been there. And so yeah, Of course, nobody wanted to go to Vietnam yeah. at that time, so they all agreed. Uh, so in the... In February of 1970, uh, well I went to Washington for training, they gave me training in safe houses and how I undergo interrogation in case I was captured, and, you know all of these new things that they uh, prepare you uh, to go overseas in there. And they offered if my wife wanted to go to uh, live in, in Okinawa, or Hong Kong, whatever, and you know, she had uh, her parents were pretty old, and they were here with, living with us. And two kids, so she decided to stay here. And um, while I went through all of that training, then I went to Vietnam by February or March of 1970. And then I was assigned as is a uh, deputy chief for the region on PRU, Provincial Reconnaissance Unit. Can you explain a little bit? Because those units are, to me, incredibly unique. What?
0: What made up, who made up those units? What, what kind of people were part of this team?
1: It, it was made a long time ago and they actually choose a very wrong name. Mm-hmm. At the very time they were called AT, assassination teams. Because it was supposed to, uh, to counteract the Viet Cong, especially separate infrastructure of terrorists that were attacking and putting bombs and, and, and in Saigon. For a little while, it was used, the AT, uh, and then it changed to PRU, Provincial Reconnaissance Unit. It was units that were formed strictly by the CIA, run by the CIA, paid with the CIA, with a National Police cover, And they appear somewhere in the organigram of the government as a special unit under the National Police. But really, the National Police had no, nothing to do with this unit. They had no control or anything like that. It was done by the CIA. And what they did is mostly they recruited former Viet Cong or Hoi or people who have either people who have been captured and they were able to to uh, accept them or people who have from the Viet Cong who have turned themselves in like mm. Chuhoy in the Chuhoy program. And most of them were from that's, that which makes very valuable because most of those people uh, when we, you capture somebody, they knew personally that guy. They knew the area, they operated in the area, so it was extremely valuable to do that. So we created, uh, before I arrived there, 11 units of PRU. There was a central command in Saigon, nationwide, because they were PRU in all five military regions of Vietnam. We were in Region 3, which is considered the most important because are the 11 provinces around Saigon. And the big boss for all the, the PRU nationwide was Tucker Googleman. He was really a legend in the CIA. Tucker was uh, a Marine major. He was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was in, an inspiration to the Marine Corps during, that, during the war. The second war, I think he appeared even in, in live magazine, on the front page, because his leg was shot off and he continued to fight, whatever. He was a legend in the CIA. And uh, he was the commander for the whole unit. His deputy was uh, another individual very well known later on uh, who was the one, the chief of station in Lebanon, who was kidnapped and eventually assassinated, William Buckley, Bill Buckley, who used to be an army captain in the past. Those were the two. And then they had the different regional uh, unit uh, chief. So the head of the PRU for Region 3 was, uh, uh, well, was one guy at first called Consul... Uh, Kuzmik, whom I had a problem with. And then the other guy was uh, Rudy Enders. And then we advised uh, 11 units. The biggest one that was probably around the training area was like uh, 170 people. The smallest unit was in Canto, in Delta, that was about 70-some PRU. And we used to go, you know, at the beginning when I arrived, we all had... uh, Special Forces and SEALs assigned to each one of that unit. And uh, Kuzmin and myself, he was the boss, I was his deputy, and used, we used to commune with all of them, but they had direct military advisors that used to be either Special Forces or Navy SEALs assigned to those units. As Vietnamization took place, they started taking all the military out. And then we assumed, no, I was given two more Americans to work uh, under Rudy and myself, and we assumed the responsibility of advising all 11 provinces, and we had to, every single month, to every one of those provinces to pay the personnel. And then we concentrated what we considered the best unit to run operation with them. We supported all of them, and they had capability of getting helicopters from us for to run their own operation. But where I personally participated mostly were with the unit, especially from the Saga Special Zone, which is the area uh, around the Saigon area, those swamps south of Saigon, with uh, Song Bay, which is near the Cambodian border the Tainim PRU, the Long Camp PRU, and, and, and Benhua PRU. We, I used to communicate uh, with them and run operation with them, uh, different uh, fields. One, were, I, I would say we had uh, a very successful um, uh, three responsibilities that worked out great. First of all, when I arrived, there was a lot of uh, rocketing of the Saigon city. And it was virtually impossible to stop that. And it was more a psychological operation on the part of the Viet Cong than anything else. Because what they did is they had a a sub-region four uh, unit commanded by a a, a, a Viet Cong colonel called Tutang. And their responsibility was to rocket the city of Saigon. They had like 80 people in that unit. And what they do, they will receive through the Ho Chi Minh Trail, use the Russian 122 rocket. They will move it across uh, into the shooting position across from the river, and they will fire the of Saigon. Now, they try to aim it, more or less, to hit the U.S. Embassy and the Presidential Palace, which hardly they never did. The surrounding of those two areas. And the idea was that next day it was going to be in the newspaper. The United States, with 500 troops in country, cannot stop the rocketing of Saigon. Right. And they will do that every single week. They will fire rocket into the Saigon area and nobody could stop that. It was very difficult to stop that. And the second was the attack of the boat. Whenever they will bring in boats into Saigon, they will come through the river, the Runzag Special Zone, and they will hit by by rocket from the ground, RPGs and things like that. Even though those boats always came escorted by Seawolf gunships, they were Navy gunships. Nobody, they could not stop that. Uh, they would see, the, you know, the the helicopter would see the fire with the rocket went off. They shoot the shit out of the area. They never got anybody. <laughs> so I tried to concentrate uh, intelligence into those two fields. And we were lucky, uh, first of all, that we were able to capture one of those units in the ground do the rocketing of, 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 of this boat. And we found out was what they were doing was they were getting, uh, they had a, I remember it was a green electrical cable, 100 meters long, when we measured it. What they do, they will set up the RPG on a platform facing where the boat was going to come. Then they stood on one of the two sides. They stood on one side with an electrical activator uh, 100 meters away, right? And they had a point of reference. Then they knew when the boat hit that point of reference, the rocket was in line with the boat, and they would activate it for hundred meters. So the rocket went off. The helicopter shoot the shit out of the area where they saw the explosion. They got nobody. Right. So what I did, I got the the Sea Wolf. We coordinated with them. We went to the same river, same general area where they got shot, and we got three different type of color smoke grenade. We had <coughs> a yellow one, who put in the middle, and two red ones, hundred meters on each side. We didn't know exactly, you know, what side they were going to be shooting and then we pop all three smoke at the times. So they can visually more or less calculate the distance for 100 meters. So from there on, every time they saw a five, you know, the explosion of the rocket, they would shoot 100 meter on one side, 100 meters yeah. on the other side, because they know which side they were shooting. Right. And we were able to eliminate like six teams like that. Wow. And they had no idea what was going on. Right. All and they, sudden, could not, they, were he, shot they could not ro- hit the rocket of Saigon anymore. Then we were tr- getting very difficult to find out this goddamn unit who was doing the rocketing of Saigon itself, not of the boat of Saigon. Well, we were able to, to pick up a, a prisoner who used to be a paramedic in Habak, which is the province around Hanoi. And he was very pissed off with the Viet Cong because uh, he was a regular army. See, by the end, when he left there, there was no Viet Cong. They were just regular army. I mean, it's a word I tell people, for example, in some of the press people, leftist people, who got pissed off at me and said, I told them, we won the war in Vietnam, we lost it in Washington. No, no, how you say you, we, we won the war? I say look, in the area where I was, we eliminated every single Cong. But how can you eliminate the fact that they had this Ho Chi Minh line coming with, whenever they were bringing equipment to the south, they would bring a, hundred, a thousand military units, North Vietnamese Army, mm-hmm. with military equipment, everything. They start walking the Ho Chi Minh Trail. <clears throat> and then they had couriers in different provinces around this the South Vietnam. These guys say, "Hey, we need fifty replacement fifty we need two hundred replacement. We need seventy replacement. by the time it got to the end, they already took a thousand were inside country. You kill them, they send another thousand it was it was a never ending process right. of eliminating them okay So when this guy was picked up, um, we had a long interview with him. He was pissed because he was a paramedic in habach, you know I say in the province around um around the, um, Hanoi, and he was the only male in the family. And being the only male, he wasn't supposed to be taken to the army away. Only he had several brothers, mm-hmm. then they would take some of them. One at least had to stay with the family. And he got his mother, and, he, and they took him to the south. He was peace with the Viet Cong for that. So he was, first of all, he was instrumental in giving us the location where they live. Now, why we never look in there it was on the swampy area of Long Tan district, between Long Tan and the river going towards Saigon. That's an area that the water tide goes 17 feet high. <laughs> nobody would—it was we, nobody could have quarters in there because of the 17 wo- high of water coming up and down. So what this guy told us, in this different location, and he knew where they were, they will solder three 55-gallon drum, one on top of the other. And fill it all with dirt, and then the guy, when when the tide start coming up, he jumped on top of the last one and he he sleep up there, <laughs> and then when the tide went down, he went down and he left again. You know, he do the operation, do the fighting, and then come back and jump. And nobody looking there because it was seventeen. Nobody will even think about looking in there, and then he flew off to explore the area. <clears throat> and uh, you know, the the technique that I used that was extremely effective was. Uh, I take the prisoner with me on a helicopter. I had a Polaroid camera. I had my Pentax camera, and he will point like this. you know, when he called like this, it could be anywhere. So I took a picture with the Polaroid camera, and then we came back again. And the guy looked at the area, and he will point the photograph exactly what it was. And then I will take lots of pictures of the specific target area, uh, where they were supposed to, to be. Now, when I gave the briefing to the Air Force. We we had regular briefing with the F4. We had about F4 plane to, to hit the target before we went in. We coordinate with the uh, with the uh, second field force. You know, General Hollingsworth was in charge of that. What I'll do is, they told me what angle they were going to be and what altitude. So I took that angle before and that altitude and the time they were planning to hit the target, and I took photograph, mm-hmm. Polaroid and the, and the and the Pentax, you know, the big one. Then I went to to the old embassy where we had um, our technical service, and they would blow up the picture, you know, in a by ten or bigger. Okay, why? The terrain in, in Vietnam is very, very. They have very little features. Very difficult to see anything because you you don't have too many mountains and region tree. Right. In other areas they do. So at the point, let's say, if you go at eight o'clock in the morning over that area, and the song is somewhere. And if you go back at 12 o'clock, the sun has shifted. And then the shadows, and when you look at it, it's a completely different view. It's not where you're looking. Hmm. Uh, so if they were going to hit it at 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning from this point at this location, I will fly at that altitude, and I took the picture at that time. Which meant when these pilot were flying on the next day or two days afterward, and they had this picture, they was looking exactly right. the vision of that. So we did that. And... It was extremely, extremely effective. We finally killed two tanks on the 4th of December of 1970 in that area. We got like three prior U wounded, which I, I went down to pick them up, and we gave the uh, the pilot, you know, uh, he got a silver, a, a bronze star for the operation. because They were shooting the shit out of that, and he landed me in the helicopter, and he stayed there under fire until we brought in all those district mm. bodies inside. His name was uh, Bruce Bomberger. And I recommended him for the, for, the, uh, for the Bronze Star, and he got the paper. I had the paperwork there somewhere. And he got the Bronze Star for that operation in there. So we finished with two tank, And, and, and then because of the Navy operation, that's where I got the Naval Medal of Honor from the Vietnamese Navy there, for stopping the rocketing of the boat right. in Saigon. And then the other most important operation we did was we had uh, well, the CIA had a source, a, a girl, who knew a lot of this cadre communist cadre in long time province that's uh, an area where they had the Kushi tunnels south of Tainin. Mm-hmm. okay it's flat terrain and there were a lot of little village around the area uh, where, where they had the entrance of the Kushi tunnel is unbelievable it was houses all around and a little bushy area with trees were not higher than 10 feet or eight feet okay but very very bushy it's, it's like 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 a, uh, a block and that's the entrance somewhere it was virtually impossible to get into the entrance of the tunnel within 50 yards, 20, because that thing had hundreds and hundreds of landmines. Wow. Only they knew how to, to to walk in there. And we did get in there. Well, what we did is we you know, we got right, we, we hovered on the helicopter, we put the uh, um, phosphorus grenade in the area, we burned the air around, and then we just got the Hughes 500 with two soldiers hanging on, I just flew over. Put it right on top of the entrance of the tunnel and drop them there, so they didn't have to walk through that. Right. It was a long process, but it did work. So she knew all of these cadres in there. So what we did first, uh, and it was extremely effective, was we got the name of every one of those cadres, okay, and they gather our our CIA gather intelligence on every single one of them, their position, what they did, every according to the source and everything else. Once we had all of this done. We assigned a, a PRU interrogator for every one of these officers of uh, this Viet Cong that were supposed to be there. Like, there were ten, we had ten different PRU from our unit. Mm-hmm. Every one of them knew only one guy. He knew as much as you could have about that guy, family, whatever. We could gather on that guy from different sources, that guy had it. So we went in there with several helicopters and we surrounded all the village, daytime, about 11 o'clock in the morning. And we got the whole civilian population to an area. We put them all in front of her, okay? And then she was with a a big hat and things on her head that nobody could recognize she was a female inside one of the helicopters that landed not too far from that group. I went down with a Polaroid camera, and I took like 10 pictures of the same fucking block of people, Mm -hmm. okay? We brought the picture to her, and she will say, it, for a little round around the face, this is so-and-so. And the people cannot move. This guy so-and-so, this guy. So we got one of these Polaroid pictures uh, uh, with the name of the guy who was here to the guy who got the story, the whole thing. Right. We got 10 pictures of all of them. We went there, you, this guy took it aside, you. And we separated all 10 of them. And then right on the spot, interrogated. We got several secondary targets right from there. We went right there. And we got a lot of other people from, you know, from that Mm -hmm. operation in different areas where they were hiding in that area. So it it became very, very, very effective. Okay, so this was basically the Vietnam uh, operation in all, you know. It was a continued type of operation. Uh, General Helensworth was very, very uh, friendly. Uh, We became very good friends. He was, uh, at that time, he was a two-star general. Uh, I love the guy. The guy was... uh, that uh, his picture in there, uh, the general. That's but that this one is when he was in in uh, in Korea. He was the three-star general. That uh, and then this one here when he when he was in the in, without two star the general right. up, up there. Okay, the one next to the top one. Yeah, he used to be the sixty-seven tank regimental commander for Patton on the World War II One. He wore one of those revolvers, you know, with. Uh, you know, his ivory talking you know, and and he was as bad as spoken as, as Patton was. I mean, you look at him, and I remember seeing the, the movie Patton, which I have seen like 20 times. I love it. And I, I am looking at Patton. You know, the guy is a replica of his boss. Uh, and he was a hell of a soldier. He will personally go into areas uh, of, of fighting that nobody will go in. He does own helicopter and everything. And we, we established a good relationship. He called me Chi-Chi. Because of Chichi Rodriguez, the the mm, the, uh, the golfer, the golfer, yeah. and uh, I remember one specific time that they had information that there were a lot of um, there was an infiltration of a lot of uh, Vietnamese and Viet Cong into the area through through the area of Cushi Tunnel, and they were going to attack Saigon, so they approve a, a Huge operation into Cambodia. That was illegal. But it was it was approved to Cambodia north of Tainan, you know And they were going to have shit. They were going to have everything Arvin soldier US military soldier. I don't know how many soldiers of airplane everything was committed to that operation By this time we have finished this this all of this intelligence from this from that area and we wanted to hit it you know and uh, Don Greg was the one who is the only one who went and assisted to the meeting in second field force with the general in the military and you know proposed our operation. He came back from the meeting and said, Philip, you know, they shut down your operation because uh, they have this big operation into Cambodia and uh, they are committing all the U.S. military uh, assets uh, ass- that uh, they have helicopter, gunships, planes, whatever, you know, B 20, B 52, everything. Say, we don't need that many. I say, well, they shut it down," he said. "Will you allow me to talk to the general?" I said, go ahead, but you're not going to be no, very successful on that." So I went to see the general at, at his headquarters in Second Field Force. So I got in and said, "Chichi, what do you have for me there?" He said, "General, I, I had a, a, a carpet with picture, intelligence photograph of the everything. It was very, very well documented." So I went through with him the whole thing. He looked at it, said, "God damn it, Chichi, I like it. What do you need?" I said, sir, I need only a one-gun ship, a huge 500, and uh, no, four-gun ship, a huge 500, and maybe at least four transportation for troops. I like it. So he called General Hamilton. He was a black guy. He was in charge of the 1st Cavalry. He was assigned to that operation. Order. And he called and said and then told the general, he said, general, you know, Chi-Chi here has the hell of a good operation. I want to support it. Can you give him? You know, He said, yes, sir, I will give him. So he gave me, finally, those, those troops. It turned out that they went inside Cambodia. We, we went in the same day. I was going to this area They were going with all you see the planes going that way hundred not hundred but tenth of them. Okay, mm-hmm. we started the operation They were all on this side. They already have moved on that side here I was getting that's why I got shot down in there one time. I had that picture that I have the two holes in the helicopter that I put out So what happened is they went there they find shit. They went nothing now, they had our frequency, so we have the F-4 full of bombs flying back, and they call us and say, do you have a target for us? I say, yes. So, we gave them target. So, the bomb, they couldn't fire in there because they didn't find anybody were was shooting our area, and that went on. Then, after that, uh, that's, I had a problem there with my boss, with Rudy, because we were going, to, they, were, they were shooting a lot of our helicopter down, because we shoot the hell out of them. So... There was one point that we were going to, the, the, my boss went in, my, um, Rudy and I came in one helicopter and he told me not to fly in to mark the target. He was going to get a, a O2, which is an Air Force uh, plane, uh, to mark the target. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a Cessna, a push and pull plane. Now, they have only white smoke rocket grenades to mark the target. And it's a flat area, there's no point of reference. And once he hit one rocket and he didn't hit the target, he read the second one, and you're flying around, you got confused where the hell it is. You're going to find, you don't know exactly where the hell you are. It was a pain in the ass. To a point that one time, you know, they were trying to clear an area and, and say, no, it's not there, it's not there. And then they fire, and they put bombs on top of one Arvin unit. It was not the Arvin unit. Yeah. And they were lucky. It's unbelievable because they bombed back into the, into the mud and exploded. One exploded like 10 feet from a guy. He w- They were all unconscious. They didn't kill any of them. Yeah. I, I went in the helicopter, I picked up one of them, and the people gathered out and everything. So this time I was going, to, I was talking the radio. I had to be talking with three frequencies. UHF uh, with the plane, VHF with the helicopter, and FM with the troops. And I am coordinating. and said, right, went to go down for the Air Force. I went to go down and went to mark with a red grenade the target. Here comes Rudy. No, 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 no. I am going to, uh, the, after it failed with the, with, the, with the Air Force, I am going to get a huge 500 from the Army to, to take off from, uh, from Gucci and, and to come in. And, to, and then the pilot who was coming back said, I only have five minutes of station time, which means it was running out of fuel. Mm-hmm. Either we put him in five minutes, or we have to, and they have to dump it. They couldn't land with the bomb. Mm-hmm. They have to go to one dumping area and just waste the bomb in there. So I was flying with this captain from one of the helicopter companies called Charlie Marvin. We maintained the friendship. He lives in Louisiana. And I said, Charlie, we didn't hear shit. Let's turn off the FM <laughs> that was talking to Rudy. We marked the target. And he was telling me, no, you cannot do that. And I'm telling them, you know, to mark You disobey me. I didn't hear shit, you know. So we went down. We marked. when well, we, got, we got hit, but we marked the target. And we came out again. And, you know, and they dumped all the bombs. Well, we finished the operation. When I get back to uh, Benoit. And Don Greg called me and said, Felix, he's laughing and say, You are grounded. <laughs> what do you mean, I'm grounded? Yeah, Rudy said that you disobeyed direct order from him. You cannot fly anymore, uh, three top level. The maximum you can fly at 2,000 feet. Okay? Then came one, one of these big operations, and, uh, and General Hollingsworth, after after the, the success we had in there, they planned four days using everything that they had in Cambodia in my area. Okay? So don't come back, he was like, I said, Felix, I'm going to leave your, uh, your uh, embargo on flying for 24 hours because General Hollingsworth said the only way he will approve it is if you mark the target because you <laughs> know exactly where they were. I say, Rudy, I, I said, Bon, either you lift it for the rest of my tour or I will not fly. Well, the general will not authorize. That's, that's your problem. Yeah. Either you lift it forever or, or I will not fly. So they lifted from there on and, and he did fly the mission. Well, you yeah. knew what leverage that you yeah. had at that point. Yeah. So they worked out pretty successful there.
0: How long were you in Vietnam? When did, when did you finally leave? Oh, for two and a half years.
1: Because hey, our tour, a year and a half, I extended for two and a half years. Another tour, a year and a half, would have been three years. But uh, that's when, this last time I got shot down, my back was in poor head, very poor shape. And one time I was flying back from operation. I, they had to take me to 24th evac. And when the guy saw the x-ray, he told me, you should have been evacuated a long time ago. Yeah. So the, then, then they they authorized first class, so it would be more comfortable. And I remember it was TWA. Chuckley was no longer in there; it was the Tom Polgar, uh, the the station chief. And then I flew back to the United States. You know, I went through medical examination. They recommended surgery. And while I was here, that's when I was uh, requested by name to be an advisor to General Sanchez de Bustamante in Argentina. Because what happened in December of 1971, uh, Polgar, who had been chief of station in Argentina, and he was very well known. He was the one who negotiated a hijacking of a plane. He personally went into the plane to convince the hijacker to turn the guy over in Argentina. He was very well thought of by the Argentinian military who were in power then, General Lanuse, Well, the, the First Army Corps, General Tomás Armando Sánchez Bustamante, was a friend of his. And he invited him to visit Vietnam. So, when the general from Argentina arrived in Vietnam in December of 71, uh, they uh, asked uh, me to, to, uh, to give him the tour in the area, you know, in a helicopter, because he didn't speak in English, so I just speak Spanish, so, you know, I gave him the tour in Spanish of the whole area. By the end, you know, we spent a whole day together from the morning until late afternoon. Uh, they came back and said, hey, the general talked to Ambassador Bunker, he wants you to be his personal advisor in, against terrorism in Argentina. And he was told that we're going to do it from here. If he really wanted you, he should request you when he gets to Buenos Aires from the U.S. Embassy there. But I heard that nothing happened. But when I came back after I was evacuated, they told me that he had requested me to Buenos Aires. And they were interested in me to go there because they didn't have any CIA guy working at this level. Mm -hmm. A directing advisor to an Argentinian general, the most powerful man after the president in in the first Army Corps. So they gave me a waiver. Uh, I had to go to, to Panama every six months for, to check on my back, and they will give me a waiver to go. That's when my family, the first time that they accompanied me. Because I've been two years and a half too long in Vietnam away right. from them, so I took my wife, my daughter, my son, and we all went to Argentina. But it was a pain in the ass because uh, <laughs> my cover was, uh, I was president of PAL Argentina. It was a, uh, a shaving company, Blade, you know, in Argentina. The general guy was a friend of his who was from, uh, uh, he was very, uh, British, uh, from England, a very close friend of his who had, who was president of Palo, Argentina, uh, Mr. Reed, Alex Reed. And, um, you know, my, my life was a pain in the ass because, you know, my family live in La Lucilla, which is, you know, a very nice area, close to the Lincoln School, uh, it's an American school where they had bilingual teaching in Spanish and English from my son and daughter. And what I had to know, according to all of everybody and our our neighbors and everything, I was a director of Pal of Argentina, which my real name, Felix Rodriguez. Then, early in the morning, I had to take the goddamn train, go all the way from La Lucila to El Retiro in downtown Buenos Aires. I had a penthouse in Calle Florida at the very top. Now, the chief of station had another penthouse on the other side, just for meeting. I had one on the other end of the, of the same, where the same floor. And then uh, they, I had to put clothes in there. I had to buy food. It was a pain in the ass, food in there. Let's say my typical two days, I arrived in I took the train early in the morning. I took the goddamn train all the way to El Retiro. I walk across the park. It's not too long. Into the apartment building, went up there, I took cans from the refrigerator, dumped it in the in the open it, it in the in the in the uh, toilet, flush it. Uh, Coca-Cola, I drop it in there, or maybe drink a little bit and put it in the basket there, jump into bed and, and run around the bed so it looks like somebody has slept yeah. in there. And then I come down and check in on the time and then an army police, an army vehicle will pick me up and take me to the 1st Army Headquarters in Palermo. Then when I came back and they dropped me there, I w- I, now by, the time, by that time they may have been there, everything was nice and clean. Mm-hmm. So then I go up, I do the same fucking thing all over again, <laughs> you know. So the next day I could sleep a little bit longer and I didn't have to do that. So the next day I will go a little later directly to in front, of there, wait for the, for the army car, come back and then do the same thing, you yeah. know. That was a, a pain in the neck. And only the general knew the, my real name and what I was doing. Right. The rest of his, even his second in command, another general, everybody else, I had a different name and, and I was a, uh, a colonel, of Nicaraguan origin and advisor to his unit. So you had to do all that to maintain your cover while you were down yeah. there, okay. I, I want to skip at a little
0: bit just for the sake of time because we certainly, two big areas that we, we re, I think we really need to talk about uh, for our listeners to really understand. Uh, your career is El Salvador and Nicaragua, of course. Um, you became a private citizen. Uh, you stopped working for the CIA by the 1980s, and... Uh, You were brought in 1976, um, but in the 80s you spent considerable time working in El Salvador um, as a private citizen, putting a lot of these Vietnam lessons to work, uh, and that's where you met some unsavory characters who would later become very famous Mm -hmm. uh, because of the Nicaraguan situation, because of the Contras. I think at some point in the future, we want to have a longer conversation about this down the road sometime, um, but can you talk a little bit about what you did in El Salvador? We're not going to relitigate the contrast because I think there's no, there's no, that would take a long time, and I think you were, so, you were so tangential to it that people keep trying to drag you into it, and I think that keeping you out of it might make a lot of sense in this case. But El Salvador, I thought, was fascinating, because these lessons seem to translate from Vietnam to El Salvador very easily. Can you talk a little bit about the experience in El Salvador?
1: Well, the reason uh, I tried for a long time to go to El Salvador. Like in 1983, uh, I remember having a meeting in Washington with Jorge Mascanoza, with uh, Senator Richard Stone, who was a Democrat, but he was an advisor to President uh, Reagan, and uh, Mr. Poma. Poma is a multimillionaire from El Salvador who owns the Camino Real, the metro center, the shopping center, uh, he got over a billion dollars between uh, things in El Salvador. He's the owner of the Toyota, Didea and Lexus in El Salvador. Now uh, he's, he have a, a bank here in, in near near uh, Brickell, uh, that they own. The family owns. He have the Intercontinental uh, on 25th, and that belonged to the Hotel uh, um, hotels in all over. I mean, the guy was very very rich, and Hor introduced me to him. And I explained to them the concept, so. In '83, I tried to implement the concept in El Salvador. And POMA facilitated me with a meeting with the Minister of Foreign Affairs of El Salvador. At the time, was Fidel Chavez Mena. And I took a, a, a flight. I went to, um, to El Salvador. Uh, the minister picked me up at the POMA hotel, which of course I didn't have to pay anything. Uh, went to his home to, to talk to him. and Then he got me a meeting with the brand new Minister of Defense, Vides Casanova. It didn't go anywhere. And uh, they listened to me politely because then, but that was it. it. It didn't go anywhere at all. But now later on, when Don became the uh, National Security Advisor to Vice President Bush, and he was my boss in Vietnam, he knew how effective this concept worked in Vietnam. When I asked him again in about this, he he's, he supported me on it. And the thing that he did, he got me a meeting with Thomas Mudley, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Latin America. Uh, I went to a... St- State Department, and I spoke to Molly explaining about the concept of the whole thing. Uh, he arranged uh, to have a meeting with Nestor Sanchez, who used to be CIA, and at that point in time, he was Undersecretary of Defense for Latin America. And, uh, and Nestor Sanchez was actually the one who uh, got me in contact with General Bustillo, because through friends of mine. I had uh, a U.S. Um, Colonel. Uh, who was with me in the Bay of Pigs? who was then working at the military group in El Salvador, um, Nestor Pino, who got me a meeting with the Chief of Staff of the Salvadorian Armed Forces, uh, General Blandon, Onicefero Blandon. But Blandon then later people told me, I said, look, he can be the Chief of Staff, you can talk to the Minister of Defense, if you want to go with the Air Force, if you don't have Bustillo's Blessing, forget about Blandon, forget about Vidas Casanova, you will never go to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. So I asked Néstor Sánchez when wanted a meeting with Bustillo. First of all, he tried to arrange a meeting at the home of, um, uh, of this guy who was representing uh, an arms dealer, um, Beret, I think, uh, in Washington, Aguirre, he's the, he's the brother of the owner, who used to be the owner of the, the Adela America here in Miami. But then that didn't work out. So finally he got me a personal meeting at Bollings Air Force Base, where General Bustillo was staying with the General. So I took an album, with my experience, I had pictures from Vietnam, and you know I had pictures of Che Guevara and the whole thing. So I met with the general at Bolling Air Force Base, I briefed him the whole thing, and I told him, and he, he looked at me and said, okay, I am willing to try your concept, but it's a problem. I won't be able to pay you. I said, yeah, general, I'm not asking for any pay. I have my retirement from the CIA, the only thing I need is a place to stay, you don't have to pay me anything. He said, okay, fine, make arrangements. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a place to stay in Japan. we'll try your concept. So that's the whole thing how I got it started. Now with this thing was going on, I got a call in in January, I got a call from Don Gregg from Washington. I said, uh, uh, Felix General Gorman wants to meet you. Uh, General Paul Gorman was the commander of Southcom in Panama. And you have to understand, you know, he is responsible for all military training in South American countries, Mexico, everywhere. He's the Southern Command Chief, four-star general. And it's very uncomfortable for him to be told that here is a guy, a civilian retired from the CIA, who is going to implement right. a military concept in his area, in El Salvador, where he does have military assistant people, where he have people working at the Air Force in La Pral, which is a special unit. And at the same time, he believed that I had very good relationship with Bush, which I didn't. I didn't even know Bush at the time. But what he was told was, you know, he had a great relationship with the vice president. So politically, he didn't want to go against that. Right. At the same time, he was very uncomfortable that I would take part in something that he would not control.
0: Well, it's bad enough if you were still with CIA. Yeah. The relationship between the yeah. military
1: and the agency has never so been great. But you're a civilian. What happened is, you know, Don told me you have, you know, he gave me a number. so you have to call this guy by name of... Captain Elton, which is the general assistant in Panama. He want to talk to you before you go there. I say, all right. So I called Captain Elton. We have become good friends after a while. He's He came back, he was working, he, he got to rank of colonel, and he was in charge of training for uh, caterpillar personnel here in Miami area. So uh, John Elton. So I called uh, Captain Elton in there, and I said, I was told to call you, general wants to meet you. And he said, yes, the general want to have a meeting with you. I say, well. When does the general want to meet me? So he told me, well, as soon as possible. Uh, he said, the general directed that you come to see as soon as possible. Say, said, well, to eight o'clock in the morning. I can take the Eastern flight, one o'clock in the afternoon. I arrive there around four. Can you pick me up at the airport? He said, oh, you mean today? I said, you told me as soon as possible. Yeah. He said, well, let me call you back. So he called me back. I said, well, general is busy today. Can you come tomorrow? I said, yes, I'll be there tomorrow. But please send somebody to the airport to pick me up because I am bringing a few things, the album of the other one, the, the Panamanian Authority, to see. So he told me, well, he says, the Captain Santiago will be waiting for you at the VIP, at the airport. So sure enough, I land in, I got my ticket in Easter, I, I landed in the, in Air, 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 um, Airport, and here's Captain Santiago, who is a guy from the protocol from the Panama. They handle all my, my entry and everything. And they had a military car who took me to um, to the military base in Fort Amador. That's where the CIA actually were located. But they have a quarter for generals in Fort Amador. And they gave me one of those quarters for generals. In, and the next day I was supposed to have the meeting with the general um, <clears throat> government. So I got there. Then the following day, they, they had a car assigned to me. And I actually could buy in the PX and everything. So I went to the... The commander area where the general was and I spent like I spent over an hour talking to him. We were interrupted one time because it was a major general from Peru who arrived that he had to attend briefly and then he came back and I explained to him the concept and everything and uh, and he liked it. I think in general turn he liked it and said well and and then at the end of the meeting I said "Um, uh, General I would like if possible that you can arrange me to meet uh, Ambassador Pickering. He's the U.S. ambassador in El Salvador so I can brief him. So I say, that's no problem, but I want you to brief my my mill group commander, Colonel Jim Steele. I said, that's fine, no problem. And then he told me, When when would you be ready to go to El Salvador? I say, Well, I have a primary commitment first that I have to bring some equipment for the Contras uh, in 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 uh, in Honduras. And after I done that, I'll be ready. It will be in the next two months or so. So fine, we agree on that. That was something misunderstanding later on, and uh, you see i I going to show you a tape here. So, uh, fine, we agree on that, and uh, he got a C-12 uh, aircraft, his twin engine, that he used to commute, his personal plane to commute, locally in the area. And he got a jet, but that's to go to Washington. We had a small one to commute in the area. And so m- my driver took me that day to the airport, and it was interesting because I arrived there, I, I sat in the car waiting, and we're waiting, so I went to the guy who was in charge of the goddamn plane. and I said, look, you know, uh, when are we going to take off? And he told me, no, no, we're waiting for Mr. Rodriguez. He said, I am Mr. Rodriguez. Oh, <laughs> I got into the plane. They had another colonel I think who was going in the plane who later was going to be dropped in Honduras. So I got into the goddamn plane. We started flying towards El Salvador. And the one of the pilot's last name was Huto, H-U-T-T-O. And his relative was a congressman, federal congressman, north of Florida here somewhere. So he, he came back to talk to me and say hello, and he looked at me and said, uh, Mr. Rodriguez, excuse me the question, are you an advisor to the President of the United States? I said, why do you say that? He said, well, the code they give you for transporting you is, is equal to the advisor to the President of the United States. I said, well, I have some kind of relationship <laughs> with the Vice President of the United States. So I had told uh, Gorman that I wanted uh, this friend of mine, Lou Rodriguez, a colonel who was in Mill Group in El Salvador, to pick me up. So he picked me up at the airport. Uh, they took me to his home, and then I went to see uh, uh, Colonel Steele first. I explained the colonel, the whole... And, and Colonel Rodriguez was a very close friend of Steele, so I immediately hit it real well with Colonel Steele, and he liked the operation. So he accompanied me to see the ambassador of and he supported me. So when I spoke to, to, to the ambassador... He was, you know, he got. I got the good, I got the okay also from the milgroup group commander. So, the ambassador say, okay, fine, I will accept you coming here, no problem, but you're gonna promise you are not going to participate in combat. So I lied to him. I say, of course I will not. No, no problem, and we left it like that. So I came back here. Uh, then I did what I was supposed to do. I, what I did, what I happened before is I had some night vision devices, one night vision device that I bought from infrared Firefly that I bought for the Nicaraguan resistance. I had to give it in, turn it over in the airport in Honduras to be able to, um, to, to um, so that they would be able to have, you know, those infrared in the ground and the airplane can, right. with the go and all of that shit. So that's what I did, that's what I meant when I told Gorman. So when I went to El Salvador, uh, finally to stay there, okay, I borrowed a, uh, a, a private plane from a friend of mine uh, here in Miami. Uh, Don Mar- Ron Martin and I flew in his plane. He's a Mitsubishi. I flew into Honduras first I drew, Turned over to the uh, to the to the guy with the Contra the night vision goals and the thing and then he flew me to El Salvador with all my stuff. That's why I stayed there So they put me up now Poma the multimillionaire, Gave me a room at the Camino Real and I could sign for food whatever I wanted for free for as long as I stay in El Salvador and then, Colonel Steele managed to rent on behalf of the mill group a, uh, a bulletproof jeep for me. So, to start working in El Salvador. That's how I, I got started in there. Now, I could tell somehow I didn't get through to Bustillo, And he sort of had me at 10 foot pole. I mean, the, I don't know, I, I could feel some kind of a rejection from the general. And I didn't know why. Later, I learned why. So I start adjusting, you know, meeting the people. And uh, uh, most of them, you know, you explained the concept that the, uh, the helicopter and they didn't like that. They didn't like to fly at three top level. Whenever I fly at 500 feet, they get the shit out of them kick. Uh, so he feel, of, which is different. I mean, when you fly at 500 feet, you are exposed. They can see where you're coming. It's very easy to shoot mm-hmm. you. If you are really at tree top level, touching the, the top of the tree, they hear the noise. They don't know where the hell you're coming because it's in the area. By the time they see you, I mean, you are 80 miles, 100 miles an hour, you go by. There's no chance for them to shoot you. Right. It's, it's fairly safe, much safer than going at 500 feet. But they didn't understand that. So it wasn't easy to, you know, to work with them. And I start preparing intelligence for my first operation. So this friend of mine, this colonel, uh, Lou Rodriguez, put me in touch with the Munguia family who had farms near the Lempa River. And one of their employees was kidnapped by the guerrilla who, who working in, in engines, of uh, outboard engines, and took them to a camp that they had in the Rio at the very end, uh, the entrance of the Rio Lempa and the ocean, to fix some of these engines, you know. And and the guy was inside the camp. So I did the same thing. I took him in a helicopter. We flew over the area. I took photographs. I prepared real nice package, uh, you know, with the base camp was. Uh, there was a little... Uh, Waterhole. He showed it to me there, and he, he was very well oriented. So I prepared the whole thing up, <clears throat> and then I planned the first operation for April 17, which is the Bay of Pig invasion date. You know, as it's, it's symbolic as that. Right. At that time, General Bustillo had gone to Peru because he had a meeting with the Peruvian Air Force. They invited him for some ceremony in Peru. Uh, we are we are talking uh, uh, 25th of uh, what well, 17th of April, okay? So I got all my package, and I go to the Estado Mayor, I go to the Head of Intelligence, presented the intelligence, the whole thing, we wanted to hit it on the 17th of April. I was talking to them about the 16th of April, the day before. So the guy looked at it. What I didn't know is they did have a battalion that was a few kilometers away from that area. So the guy said, all right, I got I will run the operation. And then he said, no, no, you cannot do it on the 17th, we'll approve it for the 18th of April. Okay. And the son of a bitch, what he did, he sent the battalion into that base camp on the 17th of April. Of course, they had a uh, sputter outside looking at the area. They reported that the army was coming, walking in, and the whole camp was evacuated. Now, they found an empty camp recently being evacuated and all of this. They didn't tell us shit. <sighs> so on the following day when we go, there was nobody there. I mean, you, some sampan who engine wasn't working was there. We knew that they had been there recently, but there was no body in the camp. So the Air Force people started laughing at me about this shit. <clears throat> First of all, to, to marry the target with smoke grenade, the Air Force didn't have use any smoke grenade. Mm. Now, the paratrooper did, so I had to borrow a smoke grenade from the paratrooper unit uh, that was assigned to the air base uh, to use it. And uh, even the pilot, uh, Reyes, Huron would fly with me, I could hear the the sarcasm in his body talking to another. We are going to the helicopter at time. He said, oh, I shoot with the machine gun. He, 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 he throw the smoke grenade. He was kind of sarcastic and, yeah. and very uncomfortable. So I got pissed. So when, when after that failure, uh, that same date, April 17th, 8A, April 18th, uh, Colonel Steele came and explained to him what happened. I said, look, these people don't want shit. That. I ain't going to get the fuck out of here. He said, no, no, Philip, no, Felix can uh, My name was Felix Ramon. Uh, I said, no, Max Gomez. He said, Max, tranquilo, you know, don't worry. Let me talk to the head of the of the uh, helicopter uh, battalion. The commander was a um, uh, stocky guy, uh, Capitan Trieros. He's an asshole. But he, he was brave. He was a brave man. But the guy who got drunk, he he, he did unbelievable things. One time he he was drunk, uh, and his people got drunk in the... In, in, uh, of Ferrer and, and, and the police took him up and he was trying to call half-drunk the Air Force to bring gunships to shoot the presidential palace unless they them release the guy. To shoot the president. <laughs> I mean, he was nuts. He was crazy. So, uh, uh, Trigueros. So, he look, let, let me talk to him. So he goes to Trigueros and says, look, you know, you didn't do well, you know, because actually it was, a, a, you know, the gunship arrived before we did in the five hundred even though there was nobody there. But if they have gone like that, it would be a disaster. They were watching the big helicopter first, and by the time we got there, there was nobody there. So. And Trier said, well, don't worry, uh, Colonel. We just got information from some farmers that there are movement of guerrilla in San Pedro Hills, Cerro de San Pedro. So we are going to try uh, Max uh, uh, concept. And then you can judge us. You can grade off if we did well or not. I mean, sarcastic too. I went to open it. Was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, all right, what the hell? So I got all my smoke grenades, I got in the goddamn helicopter with Ray Hirong. We flew into the area. It was hard to get him to go low because he would tend to continue to go up. I say, no, go down, coño. We are we are exposed if you go, you know, too high over the trees. Well, it was. I will tell you, I have never seen anything like it. Now, the guerrillas have been told, which is true. If you hear a helicopter and you are in an open field throw yourself in the ground. It, it doesn't matter you are in an open field, but don't move, which is true. You're flying at 2,000 feet, and you're looking at an area, and any movement, cut, the, cut your eyes. You, 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 you can, it, immediately, it, it, it's an instant. You see see moving, you're looking there. Right. If it is not moving, it's very, very difficult at 2,000 feet to see a guy in the ground which is not moving. So I've been told that They were doing that. The problem for them was that I was flying at 2 feet over the trees, I was looking at them within 30 feet distance, you know. Right. And they would not move. So I was shooting them, and they would not react. I mean, it it was, well, we killed a hell of a lot of that way in there. And then finally they say, hey, there is a group coming up the hill. So we went in with the 500. It was like a column of nine guerrillas. With the minigun, we eliminated like seven of them at least went down. And then another one uh, was able to to move right to the top of the hill. There was a few trees. It wasn't that many. It was a few trees, but not very thick. You could see, I thought it was a man because she had uh, all her hair inside a a little um, hat, camouflage hat, and she had a camouflage uh, uniform. So I start, you know, and then we run out of ammunition on the minigun. So I start shooting with my M16. Now, when I go there... I carry like 18 magazine of 30 round each in here, double. Mm-hmm. We serve also as a bulletproof vest. You know, if it shoot you with two, with two magazine full of bullets, it doesn't go through. Right, it will stop it somehow between there. So I start what well, I did. You know, I I shoot 30 rounds at a time. Because you know it's very hard when you are moving all of that. You tip da, 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 you never hit anybody. I said, 30 round, put another one, another third round. It took me like several magazines until I finally hit her on her leg, and she went down. Then I told the guy, look, let's they, they see all of this backpack in there, and say, Let, let's go down. I want to. They didn't want to send any troops. I said, all right, drop me in there. I want to pick up one of these big backpack and put it in the helicopter. So he land. We landed right next to this. He looked like a, like a dark guy, a very big guy. He had a foul. And when went, I was just going to come out of the helicopter on the left side, the guy started moving the foul, so I opened fire with the M-16. But the helicopter on top believed that we were taking fire. It was me firing. And told him, get the hell out of there. You're taking fire. And the guy almost drove me out of the goddamn helicopter. <laughs> so we took off. <clears throat> I told him, look. And he didn't want to bring troops. He said, you either bring troops or let's do something. So. Well, like, drop me down. You just let me alone, but I will pick all of this, and then you drop and and, get, and, I'll, and you pick me back. He didn't want to do that. So he convinced Captain Triguero to bring troops. Now, what happened? When they went there, they requested Prowl, who was advised by the CIA, to bring a unit for that. They were very skeptical of our operation. They had, they really had CIA instructors with them. We didn't get along with me at all, because mm-hmm. I was, like, competing with them in a way. And they say they were busy preparing for operation. They could not spare any troops to come down to do anything. So they had to gather paratroopers that were in charge of security of the base. But I think it was on a weekend. They had to get paratroopers from the security of the base to go into the goddamn helicopter to get about uh, two helicopters full of them to go that area. And then they went down. They picked up all the backpacks. They got Nidia Diaz, who was alive. She was wounded. And they got one six or seven-year-old kid. Another kid ran away and nobody shot him, because she was using this kid to to send um, um, messages inside cities. Because a, a kid, six, seven year old, you know, nobody paying attention right. to him, so he could go in and out of, of the town with no problem. So we captured two of them, and and <clears throat> flew back. And it was extremely important because at that time in April, they were trying to get Congress to approve a package of military assistance to El Salvador. And it wasn't easy. They had the Bolan Amendment for the contract. You know, they were not going for this. And the documentation that she was bringing in, I mean, she was moving. The, the good thing is she was moving from one base camp to another. And all of those six backpacks, all the documentation for her PRTC party, Partido Revolucionario los Trabajadores Centroamericanos, the Workers' Party of Central America, yeah. all documentation. They had all kinds of contact of them with communist bloc countries that, that were helping them. Right. Everything was there. So Nestor Sanchez sent a, a private plane, an individual to fly all of this documentation to Washington, to present it to Congress as proof of the connection between the guerrilla and foreign communist regime all of that shit, and immediately you know, the uh, military assistance was approved.
0: That's always, that's always the key, is that people are always saying that there's a real, direct relationship between some of these leftist movements in, in Latin America
1: and the Soviets or someone else. You're providing actual proof, right? And so that would that work out great. Now later on, uh, Bustillo and I became very, very close friends. Even whenever the ambassador wanted to talk to the general, he had to call me. I will arrange for the meeting. He didn't want to go alone. He always wanted to go with me. So normally we had breakfast at the ambassador's home, U.S. ambassador home. So I will meet Bustillo somewhere. We'll go in my car or his car. We go to the ambassador's residence. We had uh, breakfast together. He. Ask, you know, the general, whatever he wanted to ask, and back again. We had an excellent relationship. So it worked out very well. Later on, Bustillo told me why he was so skeptical about me. He said, look, you know, I, now I know you and what you are doing everything, you know. what, what when, you, when you told me, and I asked you I couldn't pay you, and you told me that you, I could not believe that somebody is going to risk his life in my country for no pay at all. Right. So I was convinced that you were working for the U.S. Intelligence Service, <laughs> and they were trying to find out if we were involved in, in death squad in the Air Force. Right, well,
0: that, that was the big story from with yeah. the El Salvadorian death squad. So what that's that's
1: that's what the, that's why he had me at 10-foot pole distance uh, until you know this thing started developing, and so it was very, very effective. Another time we ran an operation, and we were able to capture one of those Motorola-coated radio from the embassy and the guy didn't report that he lost it hmm. and the guerrilla had it the guerrilla was listening to the whole goddamn conversation encoded from the embassy wow and among all the equipment that we got, we got one of the And the guy the guy got fired i mean i think he got taken out of the country because he didn't report that his radio was was uh was missing hmm. and the guerrilla had it so i don't know how it got in there was somebody stole it from him or <clears throat> whatever but it was the guerrilla had the 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 radio who got Encrypted system, you know, to be able to talk encoded message with the this motorola ready long one big one Which I had one to so that that worked out uh, Extremely well uh, we uh, Actually, we stopped the gorilla used to move freely during the daytime And they had completely eliminate moving during the daytime. They had to go into the nighttime And then we start training, uh pilot with the night goggles and vision device, and they were going at night. We had FLIR for, uh, and then you know it was a pain in the ass. The guerrilla during that time, to the time that I left, was reduced 50% what of the force that they were. Wow. If they were 10,000, they were only 5,000 then. They reduced by half the force. And that's what forced them also to go to the negotiation table, because they were not winning at all, on the right. contrary. So uh, it, it was very, very, very effective. And, and during that process, that's when I got involved with the uh, with the Contra. We look forward to continuing this dialogue
0: with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.